This Bible study podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. Good morning. Do you hear me okay, everybody? Okay, I've got, um, I've had a cold, the lovely germs that my lovely grandchildren share with grandma uh, hit. And so I'm kind of a coughing uh, mess most of the time. I'm getting better. So if my voice dips down, just I'll kind of glance, but smile when you go, I need to go back up. And so um, just know that it's not intentional. Unexplainable discipleship. Meaning of unexplainable. Incapable of being explained. A seemingly unexplainable occurrence. The opposite of that, the meaning of to explain, is to make plain or clear. To render understandable. Intelligible. To make known in detail. To assign a meaning to. And to make clear the cause or the reason of account for. Discipleship. Disciple. In the Baker's Bible Dictionary, it says, During Jesus' earthly ministry and during the days of the early church, the term that was used most frequently to designate one of Jesus' followers was, quote, disciple. Mathis in the Greek. In fact, it was mentioned 262 times in the New Testament. Hence, discipleship is a central theological theme of the Gospels and Acts. The situation is different in the Old Testament and in the rest of the New Testament. There is a curious scarcity of the word disciple in the Old Testament, but it does not occur also in the epistles or revelation. However, other terms and expressions point to abundant theological concepts of discipleship everywhere in Scripture. Discipleship enjoys its most concrete expression in Scripture when Jesus walked with his disciples during his earthly ministry here. Yet the Old Testament prepares for that relationship, and the epistles and revelation describe how that relationship was carried out after Jesus' ascension. So it all ties together. To be a disciple is to be called in relationship with God. Called. The roots of biblical discipleship go deep, deep into our soul of God's calling. That calling is expressed in the pattern of divine initiative. Many times we think we're the ones that went to God and it was our idea. But our God is a God that pursues us. It is on his act first and how we respond to him. I will be your God and you shall be my people. I love that scripture. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, it also says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. God has called his people to represent him on earth. To be with him in every circumstance. 
of life to be transformed in personal character to be like him. That calling is at the heart of biblical discipleship, both in the Old and the New Testament. Let's pray. Father, I give you thanks and praise for this day, for this group of ladies that come on Tuesday mornings and Thursday mornings. Lord, I thank you for their hearts for you. And I thank you, Lord, that they desire to follow you. Be with us this morning as we look in Acts 11 of some great witnesses of what it is to be a discipleship of Christ, of yours, Lord, and to follow you. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. It seems as if so much has happened um, since I spent time with you, um, since we've been together. I know that uh, a lot of you were able to meet and kind of catch up with under last week, but um, I didn't want to share the love of my cold and cough uh, with you, so I missed out. Um, December is a hard month, and it's a very good month for our family. It's packed with emotions, reflections, and growth. Tears, hard conversations, unmet experiences, expectations. It's real life. And it's real life that is compressed in a few short weeks every year that continues to mold and shape us. It transforms us and enables us to see clearly the need for a Savior. And that's just in two or three weeks that we were set up we're apart I'm going to be a grandma again (laughs) baby girl coming in June God's hand is on and has blessed us the reason I share this is not just to update you but to remind myself how God's hand is so instrumental in every circumstance of our lives but it we don't take the time to slow down and acknowledges that it's really hard to answer these questions the author of this study proposes to us in our study. We're so busy. Most importantly, we don't slow down and acknowledge his hand in our lives. It's really hard to share with someone else who he is when we don't. Let's read Acts 11, 1 through 3 to start us off. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Big no-no. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, What are you doing? What are you sitting at the table with uncircumcised folks? The power of that, just that singular act that Peter's choice to enter that home was a major readjustment. And we can't skip over it lightly, but we have to look into it deeply. A major readjustment in the Jewish believer's mindset. 
From this time on, people were to become members of God's family by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Not to become a Jew first, then a believer, but in Christ alone. This was big. E.M. Blakelock, he's a champion. He was a champion of Christian apologetics literature in New Zealand in the 1950s and on until he passed in 1983. He said that there is to be one church, not two churches, which is what which which is what would have happened otherwise by the singular act of Peter. It required for these circumcised believers listening and hearing and seeing his action a major readjustment of all the thinking for a people fearly conscious of racial privilege and stirred anew by the thought that the Messiah of promise had appeared and spoken and they were to readily abandon the thought that a unique national destiny approached fulfillment they were to meld, melt into the church, not to be the hierarchy in which they had been led to believe. To accept the reinterpretation of ancient prophecies, they had to admit a spiritual rendering of old promises accepted and cherished. I mean, this was the very foundation in which they stood on of who they were. It was their identity. And they had to choose to lose that identity and privilege and that special place that they had built themselves into into a global organization talk about rocking your boat it called for insight it called for faith and a self-renouncing of what they knew at that time and it took an act of generosity and a transcendent Movement beyond or above the range of merely just it, keeping it here in their head but to realize that their view of God was to be enlightened in a way that they had never thought before, a spiritual awareness. Now that, that is where we're dropped into this morning in chapter 11, just in the first three verses. I could leave it at that. In the classic film, The Fiddler on the Roof, Tevia, the main character, father of a Jewish uh, family of girls, I can resonate with that, sings a very popular song called Tradition. And before he sings it, he addresses the, on, the, on Broadway in the plays, he addresses the audience, and he addresses it in the film as well. And here's just a small expert excerpt of the dialogue prior to when he begins to sing tradition I know you're singing it right now he says because because of our traditions we've kept our balance for many many years here in Anephica we have traditions for everything how to eat how to sleep even how to wear clothes for instance, we always keep our heads covered and always wear a little prayer shawl. This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition start? I'll tell you, I don't know. 
but it's tradition. Because of our traditions, everyone who know, everyone knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Pretty heavy for a fictional story set in the early 1900s in Russia in a fictional town. But I thought it was pretty paralleled to what these circumcised believers at that time would have been saying, but this is tradition. This is how we look at ourselves. This is what we do. These are our customs, and we don't sit at the table of an uncircumcised believer, let alone let him come in, come in equal to us. A major readjustment of the circumcised believer's way of life. The story of Peter's preaching to the Gentiles was of great importance to Luke. He tells it three times. Twice in chapter 10, once briefly, and again in chapter 11. If God tells us once, we should listen. If he tells us something twice, we should pay extremely strict attention. How then? if he tells us something three times over. The point is that God takes people as they are and they do not have to become something else before they can come to Jesus. I wanted to read you, and I am not a a fan of reading too much um, when I have the privilege of speaking in front of you, but um, this author is Christina Cleveland, Disunity in Christ. Uh, Karen Reisinger, one of my small group leaders, has actually uh, posted it on uh, Facebook, and um, I started reading, and I immediately needed to order the book. And so I'm going to share a little bit to bring it to the reality of what these circumcised believers, maybe a taste of what it is to these unbelieving, uh, to these uncircumcised believers. This young woman uh, said, I was taking a bus ride through the snow-capped Rockies in Colorado, complaining to myself about this guy at my church who drove me crazy. Ben and I were pretty much the only unmarried adults in our small church community, so we were often paired together during social events. As if this weren't annoying enough, Ben happened to be quite possibly the most offensive person I've ever known. I I wish I could say this wasn't the case, but everything about Ben bugged me. From his inflexibility, his preachy conservatism, to his career as an engineer who designs nuclear warheads. I mean, seriously, to his dorky Hawaiian print button downs. Alas, perhaps his greatest offense. Anyway, I was there riding through Colorado, lamenting the fact that Ben was a part of my life and and plotting ways to avoid interacting with him ever again. And suddenly I was confronted with the idea that Ben was going to heaven with me (laughs) for eternity. And I would never, ever get rid of him. (laughs) Suddenly the idea of frolicking on the streets of gold seemed less enticing. That's okay, I quickly assumed myself. Heaven's going to be a really big, big place. She had come to realize that she was beginning to grow the wrong way in her walk with the Lord. She said, first when I began walking with Christ, I felt an immediate and authentic connection with any other Christian who crossed my path. Orthodox, Catholic, charismatic, Lutheran, evangelical, black, white, Asian. Ben didn't matter. 
We were family. But as I walked with Jesus, somehow my growth had been coupled with increasingly stronger opinions about the right way to be a follower. I started keeping people I didn't enjoy or agree with at arm's length. I managed to avoid most of the bins in my life by locating them, categorizing them, and gracefully shunning them, all while appearing to be both spiritual and community-oriented. Further, I could do all of this without wasting any of my precious brain power. Oh, it was quite good. I chose to build a community with people with whom I could pretty much agree on everything. I invested lots of time and energy in fostering relationships with people who had similar ethnic backgrounds, were about my age, possessed similar educational degrees, professed similar theology, worshipped like me, voted like me, were fluent in the language of my postmodern, intellectual, wonderless, diverse culture. I certainly thought that I was doing a fabulous job because, hey, I was living in community. And isn't that what good Christians are supposed to do? Over time, I met other Christians. I found myself acting, asking them what church they attended. Some answers were more acceptable than others. The way I saw it, there were two types of Christians. The wrong kind of Christian and the right kind of Christian. It was that simple. Wrong Christian was not a thinker. He hadn't read a book in the previous two years, had the limited vocabulary to prove it, although, come to think of it, he did read a book a few years back about a one woman's rightful place in the home. He voted based on one or two issues, abortion and homosexuality, two issues that Jesus didn't even mention once, mind you. Wrong Christian lacked cross-cultural sensitivity and somehow managed to avoid spending quality time with anyone who did not dare to share his race and culture. Naturally, he only dated women within his race, although he occasionally crushed on more exotic types. When he was not rocking the suburbs in his gas guzzling SUV, he surfed or played ultimate or some other inane sport. He proudly served in the United States military and inexplicably to me, in parentheses she says, was more concerned with the preservation of the Second Amendment than the first. He was a card-carrying and proselytizing Calvinist. In fact, the last time I was over at his house, I noticed that the acronym TULIP was boldly painted above his door. Lord, oh Lord, he voted Republican, Republican, Republican. And, and he was a he. Seriously, did you expect wrong Christian to be a woman? <laughs> Curiously, right Christians was a, a lot more like me. While driving her Prius en route to the farmer's market, she self-righteously zipped past wrong Christian lumbering SUV, blithely unaware of the fact that the Prius owner and farmer's market shoppers, who are basically the same people, are consumers, just like everyone else. She was a woman of the world. She was well-traveled and able to thrive in any culture setting, except for those conservative Christian ones in the flyover states, naturally. She boasted of the ethnic diversity of her friend group and joked that she and her friends looked like they had just walked off the pages of United Colors of Bittenden's clothing ad. <laughs> she wasn't bound by political party affiliation. Rather, she thought for herself and voted independently. In other words, she voted Democrat, Democrat, Democrat. <laughs> right Christian was a reader and a writer. In fact, she had written more books than wrong Christian had read. She was an equal opportunity dater. She was strong. She knew that she was wonderful, charming, and quite frankly, a more valuable member of the body of Christ than wrong Christian. All these characteristics and many, many more made her right Christian. So it all began with two labels, right Christian and wrong Christian. 
The funny thing is, the more I, I talk with people about these labels, the more I realize that many of us carry our own descriptions of right Christian and wrong Christian. Perhaps in your opinion, my right Christian is your wrong Christian, and my wrong Christian is your right Christian. Or maybe your wrong Christian and right Christian are totally different birds. Recently, a friend told me that he was not willing to attend a particular church in our town because the last time he visited church, he noticed a young man wearing a baseball cap during the worship service. According to my friend, wrong Christian is an irreverent little twerp who wears baseball caps during church. Maybe this isn't your issue. I have another dear friend who is unable to talk about charismatic churches without a noticeable amount of disdain in her tone of voice. To him, raw Christian is a charismatic guy who speaks in tongues and worships weirdly. Maybe do you, wrong Christian, attends a church that allows female leadership? Or maybe wrong Christian attends a church that doesn't allow female leadership? Maybe wrong Christian doesn't speak English. Maybe wrong Christian is... Maybe wrong Christian is in a college fraternity. Maybe wrong Christian drives a Hummer. Maybe wrong Christian promotes reformed theology. Maybe wrong Christian dresses like she's in a music video. Wrong Christian is pro-choice. Maybe wrong Christian takes a bus. Maybe wrong Christian is just annoying. Maybe wrong Christian is unevocably pro-Israel. Maybe wrong Christian is a Yankees fan. You get the picture. My opinion of wrong Christian was so strong that I not only avoided him, but I also actively condemned him. Perhaps you're not as opinionated as I am, although I'm sure many of you are. Maybe you have opinions that don't voice them in a forceful and condescending way. Or maybe you don't voice them at all. You're not around wrong Christians very much. So you're not devoting a lot of time and energy to criticizing him. He's so far outside your circle of right Christians that he barely exists. The mere act of creating right Christian and wrong Christian labels makes wrong Christian a target of your criticism or simply dead to you or both. For the most part, I was happy to keep wrong Christian at bay. There was just one cosmic problem. As I got to know Jesus, I began to realize this was not exactly what he in mind, had in mind when he invited us to participate in his kingdom on earth. I discovered that Jesus apparently didn't get the memo concerning the colossal importance of my distinction between right Christian and wrong Christian. In fact, he doesn't seem to care much for this distinction at all. I think this is what God meant when he said, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than yours. Thoughts. Isaiah 55, 9. There I was convinced that I was defending Jesus by condemning wrong Christians when I saw that Jesus was beckoning both right Christian and wrong Christian and inviting all of us to know more of his heart. As I read through the Gospels, I noticed that he had a habit of connecting with people. Conservative theologians, liberal theologians, prostitutes, divorcees, children, politicians, people who party hard, military servicemen, women, lepers, ethnic minorities, celebrities, you name it. He was pretty serious about connecting in spite of the natural and ideological differences. And it doesn't end in the Gospels. He repeatedly disregards my right and wrong Christian labels and continues to beckon me, even though I still tend to cling to such earthly distinction. He's relentless. He's a God that pursues us. And today he even tur- he turns our world upside down when we fall into that. So we can't sit back as Peter talked very gingerly and humbly with these circumcised believers when they objected. We're not much for them sometimes. We put our to-do list of what it's to look like to be the right Christian. 
And if we can't deal with it, then we keep them at bay. Jesus is all about unity, not disunity. When you think of the words disunity, and the first part is dis, to dis someone, the value that we would have the audacity as individuals to dis someone others' values in Christ's eyes. That's a place we are never called to be. But we are called to be united. And the last part I wanted to say, uh, and what she challenges us, is because it's something to say this and, and share this with you. But what does that mean for you and I in this room and in our spheres of influence when we have someone that really has a different basis in a theology and an ideology that's different than us? How do we navigate in that? And, and how do we share it? And how do we humbly come before them? And she suggests that we don't ignore it, even within our churches, but that we look at it as it's iron sharpening iron, and we speak with gentleness and with caring, not pounding it over their, over their head, but to learn why they believe what they believe, so we in turn can share why we believe what we believe, and to come to the table together and talked about. That's what friendship is, a deep friendship, a sister in Christ, more so than I'm not going to go there. It's just like the decision we make around the Christmas table. No politics, no religion. Don't bring them up. And I don't think at times, and we can we can do that, but at times like, is God calling you in another setting, in another time for a cup of coffee or what, to bring up and to ask? Then listen to that prompting from the Spirit, if that is you. More so than running the other way and staying safe. And here we can stay pretty safe. We look pretty similar. We have the same backgrounds. We're a little of the wrong Christian that she talks about. Not so much anything other than it's okay to be safe, draw strength from that and support it from that, but to stay just in that, I think, is what Peter was talking about, what Cornelius was talking about, what Barnes was talking about, what Paul for sure was talking about. Have your safe places. They're crucial in your walk and your growth. But take the chance to risk. And it might be just walking across your neighborhood street. It doesn't have to be India. It doesn't have to be. But if God calls you that, do so. But do. When Peter heard the objections, instead of responding, he had a choice. Peter had a choice. How he was going to respond to He's circumcised believers. He could have said, get on board. And stay and just get rid of your line of thinking. Or stay put. I don't care. But move out of the way because we're going. But he did not respond to them in any way. Perception. Perception is a strong word and is also a very powerful word. The definition is the ability to see or hear or become aware of something through the senses. Some of the synonyms of perception is impression, 
idea, conception, notion, thought belief, judgment, estimation. In my world right now, there is a tremendous amount of energy that is spent on taking into consideration how others perceive your actions. When all four of my girls can get together in a room and we can be reminiscing about an event in the past, they all four will invariably have a different perception of how it all went down. Of course, I tell them my view of that is the right view. And then I get the rolled eyes from all of them. Like, mom, really. When our line of thinking is challenged, and this is what was happening here in Acts 11, it takes tremendous amount of prayer did you see in the, as we go farther and as we read a little bit more, that Cornelius and Peter were in prayer when these visions, when the angel came, God spoke, they were in prayer. And it takes God's strength to hear and see what God is saying through the circumstances before us. Sometimes we cannot see the forest for the trees. Let's look again at scripture in verses 4 through 18. Peter began and explained every to ta- everything to them precisely. Our author of the Bible study really honed in on this as well, and so does the commentaries that are read, precisely as it had happened. I was in the city of Joppa praying, key, praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheep being let down from the heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds of the air. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, peeper, peeper, Peter, kill and eat. Well, see, he's probably trying to peep, you know, around the uh, sheet. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Oh, Peter, Peter, Peter. Oh, Peter, he's me sometimes. But no, I know. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation without going with them. So we've got the Lord speaking to him and the Spirit moving at the same time. And sometimes in the midst of such Difficult circumstances, it's hard to hear and it's hard to see the Spirit's movement. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Praying, seeking God's will, 
Notice this was a stepping off point for both Peter and Cornelius that I spoke to before. They were praying. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. It says in Psalm 32, 8. It's a promise, ladies. When we come to him, he will give us direction. When our ways are his ways, we sense peace. We no longer need to be controlled by others' perceptions because he gives us rest from all of that when we are within his will. It's when we step out of it that tension arises. We don't experience these divine revelations today as much as we do um, today. And, uh, but we do have this. And some of you even have several copies of it. And some of it is very pretty underneath that pretty figurine over by the flowers. <laughs> and then some of our favorites... And some bring much ministry because, or much um, warmth because it's been given to us by a generation before. But we have this. My personal opinion is Peter was at peace when he recounted what had happened. He didn't have to force it upon the circumcised believers. He just needed to tell them again. Verse 9, it says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Here again, God is saying and telling Peter. And Peter had to get this. It's kind of like, whoa. But Lord, this was then and this is now. And he had to envision himself. What these Gentiles were and how we were to see them. Here's a saying that came across my Facebook feed that I'm attempting to, be, to do a better job at it. Why? Because it's come three times in three different ways. And um, that's, I really, it's like, okay, okay. It says, always pray to have eyes to see the best in people. A heart that forgives the worst, a mind that forgets the bad, and a soul that never loses faith in God. I've heard it spoken to me by an individual saw it separately on Facebook, which is, you know, I love Facebook, but anyway. Um, And then I read it here. I took notice. It took three times. And sometimes it does. Sometimes I get it on that first little passy. But it was that third time that I said, okay, Lord. Because I surely, too, want others to see the best in me. I want to extend grace and forgiveness, non-judgmental attitude at all times so that others can see Christ in me as much that you can see it in me. So I have to be about that. I have to be more Christ-like. I have to learn. And I have to humbly come before me. I screwed up, Lord, again. Please forgive me. Help me to see. And help me to hear. Not only did Peter give account precisely to what had happened, but the Holy Spirit spoke to Peter. 
telling him not to hesitate to go with the men sent from Cornelius. Sometimes in the middle, I'm not going to say it's 100%, sometimes in the middle of muck, you do not, I, I personally can't see the Spirit speaking. Not immediately. A lot of times in hindsight, but in the midst of it, it's hard. It's hard to see. When we open our hearts to God, asking for his leading, and then study his word, God takes the word and applies it directly to our situation. So we've got to act. We've got to hear. We've got to see. So there's movement on our parts. There's response on our part. You and I might not always see God's hand in a given circumstance, but God does have a purpose when something happens. Do you and I believe that God is sovereign? Do we believe he's in control? Do we spend time continually getting to know him and his character through his son? Do we believe that the Holy Spirit is instructing us on how to live for him? Do we believe that? Do we stand on that? Is that our everyday thought? Peter was not a lone ranger in his understanding of what God was telling me. He had his brothers as witnesses as well. Back in Deuteronomy, as a tradition, at least you needed to have three others. Peter's smart. He got six. This was big. And they saw it, and they felt it too. As much as it was groundbreaking, upside-down, jaw-dropping concept that God was leading them into, he drew confirmation and of God's leading of him personally, knowing that his brothers shared in that experience with him. Isn't it confirming when you are serving, when you're doing with a team of other fellow believers that see the same and walk together? God did not send us out to be Lone Rangers. Have you ever been in a situation like that? That you're being led by the Spirit to go against the grain of the line of thinking of the day knowing that you will face insurmountable pushback and opposition. How important would it be to have sisters and brothers come alongside of you and say, we stand behind you and are in agreement with this new line of thinking? This is when it's crucial that one would be leaning to the Spirit's leading more than ever, just like Peter was, and just like Peter, we can be assured if we gently and precisely sticking to the facts we too can bring our brothers and sisters to a place of understanding with us. And that's the crux, sticking to the facts. Peter also found that the ground prepared that, that God had called them to was fertile. They were so ready. Cornelius' household was so ready to hear what God had to share with them. This is not always true when God calls us into a hard place. It's not 100% guarantee that you're going to find people going, thank you for showing the wrong ways. I get it. Welcome. They're not. But sometimes, and in Peter's case, key, instrumental, they did, and he encouraged his heart. Every mission, missional person that goes out on a mission that leaves the safety of this and goes out is not always going to, immediately find receptivity, but they have to have perseverance that, that on this side of heaven, God's going to call who God's going to call. He just says, go. We look for signs of confirmation, and we acknowledge when God blesses us, we stay true to the scriptures that in all good things will lead our way of thinking. 
I want to leave you with a couple more questions. You know me and questions. To kind of bring this home, which I can't see the find the questions. So you're going to be pretty darn lucky. Oh, sorry. Okay. Have you ever been an eyewitness to a new believer's transformation? If so, have you set up in your mind the criteria of what this transformed life is to look like? Church attendance, Bible study attendance, clean up their speech, no more drinking drugs, sex, lying and stealing. Have you ever been upset when God had compassion on a new believer? Have you ever been upset when God had compassion with someone who had hurt you, slandered you, lied to you? How do you not judge others' actions and learn to see the heart of others? What are ways in which we can minister to those who have walked away from the church to encourage them to re-enter the body of believers? Make a list. Start praying. What has God called you to do that you have adamantly said no? Forgiving someone? Speaking up for Jesus in fear of receiving opposition? Judging someone and not extending grace? What does extending grace to someone's lifestyle look like to you? In what ways can you know Jesus more so if you would be prepared to answer who he is? What do you individually as women need to do and hone in on? And the last question is, if others would meet you and rub shoulders with you, would they know that you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus, a disciple of his teachings, a woman filled with grace and love, forgiveness and acceptance. Would they know that? Especially before your mouth even opens, but by the actions in which you received them, would they know? The name Christian came out of the church of Antioch. It was a pagan city. Let us be the witnesses God calls us to be. Every day. Let's pray. Father, I give you thanks again and praise. I thank you. I didn't cough. You are so good. Um, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that you gave us Peter, that you gave us Cornelius, you gave us Paul, you gave us the encouraging Barnabas that always could see the best. He was such an encourager. May we be that. May we always see the best in others. May we be encouragers, builders up, not tearers down, not divisive, but may we unite. May we have courage and boldness to speak the hard things to our friends that we love, and may we have open ears to hear. Help us to love, Lord especially those that are so unlovable because they might, in our heart of hearts and in our mind, might be the, quote, wrong Christian. 
There is no wrong Christian nor right Christian in your book. All fall short of the glory of your son. But Lord, we are women of yours. Be with us over the discussion this morning. May it be rich. May it be full. And may it always honor and glorify you. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.